Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I am Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Dr. David Farmer and Jackson Vuha about their show, Why You Aren't Dead Yet. But first up, here's the news about battery-free spy cameras. Powerless cameras? A team from the University of Washington have developed a streaming analog video camera that requires thousands of times less power than a traditional digital streaming video camera. The team are working towards a high-definition camera that could stream with no batteries at all. They've started a company called Jiva Wireless to license their technology from the University of Washington to commercialise it. Their paper describes a device that works over a distance of 8 to 16 feet, which is confusing because the rest of the units are in metric. Today's streaming video cameras digitise and compress the video signal in the camera before transmitting a radio signal to either a mobile phone or a Wi-Fi router or other receiver. The digitising, compression and broadcast take up a lot of power so they chew up batteries very quickly, and it limits the size and mass of the camera. The researchers were inspired by a spy bug from the Cold War. Back in 1945, the Young Soviet Pioneers Association, as a gesture of goodwill, gave a large wooden carving of the Great Seal of the United States to the American ambassador in Russia. This device became known later as the Great Seal Bug, or The Thing. And it was designed by Leon Theremin, who is best known for his invention, the theremin, an electronic musical instrument played like a harp without strings. The seal had a resonant cavity microphone, which is a membrane that vibrated whenever someone in the room spoke. The vibrations moved a capacitor connected to a radio antenna. Nothing happened until the Soviets broadcast a radio signal to the room. This caused the antenna to broadcast radio waves in response that encoded the sound as changes in the strength of the signal, amplitude modulation, that could be heard on an AM radio receiver. The resonant cavity microphone had been patented by the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, four years earlier. The researchers at the University of Washington thought if you can have a passive sound sensor that broadcasts radio when you shine radio waves on it, why not a passive video sensor that transmits video when you shine radio waves on it? The photodiodes in the camera's light sensor send information to a pulse width modulation encoder. This encodes the colour of the pixels as the length of the pulses of electricity, with their brightness as the length between them and the order they are sent for their location. This low-powered signal connects to the radio aerial, where it does nothing until the circuit is bathed in a radio signal from outside. The circuitry converts the radio to power to send its own radio signal, 
encoded with the pulses that encode the pixels. This radio signal is received by the same device that sent the original radio signal, and on reception of the encoded signal, it decodes, digitizes, and compresses the video to send or record as usual. Researchers have simulated the battery-free devices and built a prototype that streams 720p HD images at 13 frames a second across 16 feet, which is almost 5 metres. The prototype uses up to 10,000 times less power than a conventional streaming camera, but still needs a battery. The prototype uses off-the-shelf components and a low-power field-programmable gate array FPGA, which is why it still needs power. The streaming camera with no batteries, 100% wirelessly powered, will use an ASIC chip. They've simulated an application-specific integrated circuit ASIC chip to replace the FPGA for the battery-free design, and the simulation shows that the special chip would let their camera stream video at 1080p resolution at 30 frames a second up to distances of 8 feet, which is almost 2.5 metres from the reader, powered only by radio from the reader. They see the initial use cases as a wearable streaming video camera that communicates using Wi-Fi to a mobile phone in your pocket, or a security camera that communicates by Wi-Fi with a nearby router. The researchers ask you to imagine football games with cameras all over the stadium, and the players streaming real-time video of the game with cameras that never need to have batteries replaced. However, I could see the surveillance and military communities grabbing this technology up and deploying it everywhere, especially if it needs no batteries at all. The research was funded by the National Science Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Google Faculty Research Awards. The team presented their findings at the Advanced Computing System Association's Symposium on Network Systems Design and Implementation in a paper titled Towards Battery-Free HD Video Streaming. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr. David Farmer is a neuroscientist and all-round squishy brain enthusiast at the Florey Institute in Melbourne. He works with craft brewer and comedian Jackson Vorha on a show for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival called Why You Aren't Dead Yet. I spoke to them both by Skype and began by asking David what part of neuroscience is he researching? Yeah, I'm a neuroscientist and specifically I'm interested in the brainstem. So this is the very ancient old part of the brain at the base of your skull. Um, and this is not a part of the brain that's involved in you know, consciousness or memory or emotions or any of those sexy things, but is involved with like breathing and heart rate control and fluid levels and temperature and kind of housekeeping stuff. Some of the people at my neuroscience, the, the institute that I work in, who study consciousness or memory might call that housekeeping, but I call it why you're not dead. I think it's really important. And this is a very old and important part of the brain and it's important to understand it. So that's that's how I get my jollies at work. 
And what sort of things does understanding that bring you? Is there any therapeutic application? Um, I, I mean, like I say, so this is a part of the brain that I'll get to the therapeutic, but this is a part of brain. It's maybe 2% of the total volume of the brain. We're talking about not very much brain tissue at all, but this is the part of the brain without which you cannot live. Like if you, if you are born with the ability to shoot laser beams out of your, out of your eyes, if this part of your brain doesn't work as a result, then you don't, you don't survive. It doesn't matter how good the rest of your brain is. If this bit doesn't work, it's a really, really, really important part of the brain. So, I mean, therapeutically, there, there are obvious therapeutic implications of not dying moment to moment. <laughs> I like to think that's important. So in my research, I don't really have a disease focus. I really just am trying to understand how this crucial part of the brain works. And how you can get people to have laser vision. Well, that sounds very promising research. Of your research. <laughs> so, how did you two get together to produce a show? I've been in I've been in Melbourne for six years. I, my wife's a statistician, and I followed her here six years ago when she was offered a job. And I was writing my PhD thesis at the time, so I was you know thirty thousand words into this document, hating it, hating life. And Karen said, do you want to come to Melbourne for two years? And all I heard was, <laughs> do you want to leave town in a few weeks? And I looked up from my computer and said, yes. Um, and Jackson was actually one of the very few people in Melbourne that we knew before we moved here. Um, so Karen had met him. I had met him briefly in a corridor of a darkened room during the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. Didn't really know him, but I knew he was a stand-up comedian. And... In a city of four million people, you don't expect to bump into the one person that you know in that city on the second or third night that you're in the city. But we were in Cabinet Bar in the CBD, and sure enough, that's what that's what happened. So yeah, that was weird. That was weird, right? That was I just like scanned across the horizon and went, "Hey, it's my Scottish friends that I didn't know were here yet. <laughs> <laughs> here they are." So we've been we've been buddies since then, and um, I've seen Jackson do stand up a number of times, and he's an extremely funny man. And I know, right? Just, yeah, but the stuff you know about the brain. Ugh. Right? What's more important, brain or comedy? I mean, it's comedy, obviously, but... It's I think nice. as long as the sexual tension's never resolved, I think it's basically <laughs> fine. I don't mind. I don't mind who wins. Cool. All right, then. Yeah, so knowing that Jackson was funny, I got interested in science communication the past couple of years. I did a couple of competitions and did okay in those and really got a kick out performing. I've always enjoyed performing. Decided I wanted to do something off my own bat, some kind of show. And the comedy festival was just the next registration deadline. So I said yes. <laughs> and Jackson was the person I knew could help me to negotiate that and to make the show funnier than it would be if it was just me by myself talking about the arse end of the brain, effectively. Um, so that's that's how it happened. And you did Fame Lab. Yeah, that's right. So that, that was that was it. That was the competition I did a couple of years ago. And that's run by the British Council in Australia. And it's a, it's a kind of three-minute, no PowerPoint, hold on to yourself, just get the message out there as entertainingly as you can and as faithfully to the science as you can. And the, that was great. And there was some great media training that came with that that kind of also just got me thinking more about engaging with, in the, with the public in this way. And, I mean, it's, it's worthwhile. Science communication is worthwhile because... We live in a world where there are climate change denialists and anti-vaxxers and getting the message out is really important. But it's also just a lot of fun for me. This is, this is, this is a way that I, that I get to have fun. 
and that's that's fortunate for me and it's it's a great thing to do and so how does your show run do you come out and give a talk and then jackson interrupts you or what's your dynamic for people who haven't heard you before Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much how it's going to be. So this will actually be the first time that we've done it. Ooh. But what we're... It'll be... Do you know, Ian, there's going to be something for everyone. <laughs> there's going to be a bit of comedy, a bit of straight stand-up, a little bit of storytelling, a bit of... Um, like, I really want to get into the science, hopefully with Jackson's mirthful interjections. And I'm just trying to, I'm just going to try and not be too harsh to flat earthers. I think that's going to be my main task. Talk about anti-vaxxers and, and science denialists and climate change denialists. My favorite one is flat earthers. It's great. We got photos of it, mate. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just look at the photos. People but they're all in 2D. Where you can see that it's not flat. <laughs> <laughs> there was that guy that launched a few weeks ago on his own rocket to prove the I world was that, flat. The, the air-powered <laughs> rocket. The air-powered rocket. And he got he got 700 metres up or something crazy. Yeah. And I think all the images of him, that every time he was mentioned on the internet, there was automatically a picture of Wile E. Coyote strapped to that <laughs> rocket next to him. So, you know, good on him. Like, he was someone who designed an experiment to test his hypothesis and... Uh, we can all debate his interpretation of those results, but that guy built a rocket and strapped himself to it. <laughs> I walked 400 meters to the university. You know, that's he's got something. He does indeed. And so onto the brainstem. So the brainstem, as you're saying, controls all sorts of things that you consciously don't control, but it's still that's your brain right. controlling them. Yes and no. So the brainstem does a lot of things that we think of as involuntary control. So like I say, like breathing and heart rate control and things like that. But And those things are life essential. So breathing particularly, for example, is essential for life. If you stop breathing for five minutes, then you're a dead person. Yeah? It's a very controversial show. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you stop breathing for five minutes, you're dead. And yet, my brainstem is generating the rhythm of my breathing, and that's why you go on breathing if you're in a coma or you're asleep or you're not paying attention. You keep breathing because your brainstem is just dealing with it for you, and you don't have to worry about it. Yet, with my higher brain functions, I can go in and override the action of those muscles. So when you think about that, that's actually kind of wild. If I stop breathing for five minutes, I'm dead. And yet, I can use my life essential brain circuitry for breathing and my life essential respiratory muscles to tell you about life essential brain circuitry and respiratory muscles. Indeed. I, I once used my, my life essential brain circuitry and muscles to, in a moment of passion, call my now wife, Michael. I mean, it's, it's completely absurd. It doesn't just keep you alive. Sometimes it puts you in danger. That's right. Extreme <laughs> danger. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. These are life essential functions that we can override, and that's cool for that's cool for two reasons. One, that it happens without any input from us, and it's cool for another reason, which is that yeah, we can we we can override these functions. We have these important, incredibly important functions like breathing that are controlled by the brainstem, which are essential to life. But then, just think how important communication must be to human beings if I can decide to have a conversation instead of just breathing. And if we can evolve those structures to interfere with the function of, you know, the, the life essential brainstem um, without killing us, that's cool. 
That was a very convoluted sentence, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Are there other things the brainstem does that we can interfere with consciously other than breathing? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, and so I'll tell you what, it's it can be conscious or it can even be something in the middle. So one good example is if so if I am sitting here and my heart's beating at a particular rate and my blood vessels and my muscles are at a particular diameter and my gut's happily churning away under control of the brainstem because I'm sitting resting. If I suddenly see something alarming, like a bear or some other large terrifying stimulus like me stepping out of the shower that one time will never leave me my brainstem was overridden <laughs> um you have to in order to see the bear that's quite a complicated brain thing to happen you have your eyes have to see the bear you have to process the image it has to be related to your recall of what a bear is and the context so you can actually know that it's terrifying but that input goes two places so that that sequence of events happens you see the bear and the information goes up to your higher functions and you get terrified, but the information also goes down to the brainstem. So when you're terrified of the bear, you're thinking about running away from the bear or fighting the bear, probably running away though. And your brainstem at the same time, when the information goes up, that's what you are thinking about doing. But when the information goes down to the brainstem, the brainstem's getting your body ready to do those things. So your heart is no longer just beating, it's going very fast and the blood vessels in your muscle are all opened up so there's more oxygen going to them so that you can use them and your your gut muscles are constricted because there's no point in being able to digest a sandwich when you are in danger of yourself being digested by a bear and um, so yeah it's it's breathing can be overridden consciously and that's a that's a very clear example of that but there's also these things in the middle that involve integration of the whole brain and the brainstem you know letting the body do what the brain needs it to do next in order to survive. So things like meditation and galvanic skin resistance and all sorts of things. Absolutely. I don't know about galvanic skin resistance. I don't know anything about that. I'm going to look that up as soon as... What is galvanic skin It's what they use in lie detection tests. You know, the old thing about uh, picking up current from your skin and if you sweat more because you're lying or other things they say they can pick up. It's, It's on the borderline of being scientific. Like it's a, it's a real yeah, thing. Yeah, it, right. It's it's genuine that there's a galvanic skin resistance they can measure. It's yes. the science is whether or not it means anything. Whether you can relate it to something that's happening in the brain. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Meditation. Certainly. I, I don't know anything about meditation. I know that your breathing changes and that your heart rate changes. And um, one, uh, one quite interesting one that I actually study directly is a, a thing called the respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And that's a very complicated set of words that puts people off. But what I'm talking about is the, the fact that your heart rate actually accelerates when you breathe in and decelerates as you breathe out. And with particular breathing exercises, you can make the magnitude of that change bigger or smaller. And that doesn't sound like much, but this is actually a very widely used assay by, well, a widely used test by people in particular um, in psychological fields of study where you are trying to get some kind of measurable objective um, output from the brain, it's easy to record the heart rate and it's easy to get the magnitude of that change from a simple measurement. So, I mean, people have looked at the relationship between fluctuations in heart rate and depression and antisocial behavior and this whole raft of things. And if you put it into a, a search engine, you get hundreds of the medical literature, you get hundreds of thousands of hits. 
So that's a that and that's all brainstem function. That's a that's something that comes out of the brainstem that the brainstem is necessary for. That's influenced by these higher functions, and that also has some apparently diagnostic utility. So all you have to do to fool the test is breathe in deeply, and your heart will speed up. It depends. I mean, it, <laughs> it depends. So if you're if you're anxious or you're exercising, it tends to become smaller. You know, the it tends to your heart will just speed up and it will stay there. It's 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 very complicated. It's it's more complicated than. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit out of left field there. Because I don't know what sort of things you'll be covering in your show. So in the show, what, what I wanted the show to be, what, when people come to the show, I want them to get some kind of basic ground-up understanding. So the show will go through, you know, how cells work and how what's special about brain cells in particular and how you can use them to make something that is a brainstem, which is something that keeps you alive. So, I mean, when you, when people, when neuroscientists talk about memory or emotion, people have an intuitive understanding of that. And they think of that as brain function, as, as part of them, you know, we think of ourselves as these pilots on top of these functioning bodies and the functioning body is, is one thing, but the functioning body is really still the brain and it's really the brainstem. So I really want to talk about that. I really want to go from the ground up and, and get to this fun place where here's why you aren't, here's, here is how your brain is keeping you alive, not from day to day, but from minute to minute. These are the functions that, that stop you from dying. And yeah, I want people to have a basic understanding of that. I also just want to go on stage and be silly and have a fun time and, and entertain people. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's all of those things. Have you heard I'll of that? Oh, sorry. PhDs after. I'll be handing out PhDs after the show. Excellent. Yeah, so a master's just for attendance and then a PhD <laughs> on completion. A short test. Have you heard of that Italian neurosurgeon who wants to try doing brain transplants? I, I think I... I think I have, yes. And the, the the debate was whether if you take a brain out and put it in someone else's body, whether that's a brain transplant or a body transplant. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because where? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because where is the person? And what's doing the transplant? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think head transplants have also been a thing. Yes. Yes. And, related. And similarly, similarly, if you, yeah. I mean, you are your brain. Like, mm. if, if we, you are your brain, you are the contents of your brain. And I, I don't necessarily think we need to invoke anything magical to explain you because the brain is so complicated that we at least cannot discount the possibility that the brain is so complex that it just makes up who you are. So I think that, as for whether the brain is all of it, I mean, you are your brain, but you're also your stomach and your arm and the integration of all of those things. And I mean, I don't know if the only reason here's the thing. The only reason that you and I can convince each other that we're conscious is because we can have a conversation and interact with each other and convince each other that we are, in fact, like the other and that we're conscious and here and that our brains work vaguely similarly and, and we can converse. And that's meaningful. And I've never spoken to a brain in a jar. So. <laughs> Missing out, mate. Oh, really? It's great conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly bubbles. You need an interpreter. <laughs> so I have no idea. But yeah, it's fascinating. Right. 
if people would like to come to the show, I urge them to do so and I urge them to buy tickets soon because I think there are seven tickets left. There are tickets left on Wednesday, the 18th of April for 9.30 p.m. And Thursday, the day Thursday. after that, <laughs> at 9.30 p.m. And there's a Saturday show, but the Saturday show is sold out. But anyone who wants to come and bang on the windows or otherwise make my entrance more rock star like is very welcome to do so. And if you don't manage to come this time, we are very keen to do this again in the future. So possibly as part of National Science Week from the 9th to the 17th of August. And I mean, any other time that we can possibly do it. Just stalk us. We might do it again. You might as well just follow us the whole time because we might just spontaneously break out into a show on the, in the middle of the street. It's been known to happen. It has been. I mean, it hasn't, but yes, it's been known to happen. <laughs> but yes, it may happen. <laughs> and you should pay attention just in case. If you just want more information about the show, we have a Facebook page, uh, Why You're Not Dead Yet. It can be accessed on the Melbourne International Comedy Festival's site. Search Why You're Not Dead Yet and you'll find us. My Twitter handle is at Ace of Daves. And Jackson is at Lanky Wordsmith. Lanky Wordsmith? Lanky Wordsmith. Lanky Wordsmith. Yes. Without the speech impediment. Yes, exactly. Clean it up. Do it again. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, David and Jackson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. David Farmer and Jackson Vorha talking about brain science and their show, Why You Aren't Dead Yet, at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. 
You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.